One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Delicious Podcast with me, Julie Smith. And for the last time, to the monthly magazine-style podcast. We'll be kicking off a series of themed episodes in the autumn. But first, we meet the rugby captain-turned-brewer, Raymond Blanc on 35 years of Belmont Le Manoir au Quatre Saisons, and Alison Roman on the recipe that went viral. And to kick it all off, editor of Delicious magazine, Karen Barnes, on the July issue, which is all about skills. Delicious is always focused on skills. It's one of our... Uh, unique ingredients I would say that whenever something is uh, slightly technical in a recipe we try to explain it and also give additional know-how on ingredients and things like that but we when we were planning the July issue we decided that it would be really wonderful to have a whole issue that was focused on becoming a better cook so that every element of the magazine has things explained as to how you can do them better and how you can hone your skills in the kitchen and of course we'll we'll hear a bit later from Livy about how to make the best pastry yes but the interesting thing is it goes beyond just bare recipe skills so we have a, a feature that's all about how to make food look good mm-hmm. um, by our regular columnist Georgina Hayden mm-hmm. because you know we eat with our eyes don't we and beautiful images help to draw you into a recipe but equally laying the table and arranging flowers in a certain way she has a, a real knack of doing that brilliantly and uh, also we have a, a really interesting feature on how to make a recipe go viral over and above just looking good Yes, because there are certain recipes online and on the on social media that grab the public's attention and yeah. suddenly you'll have, you know, thousands and thousands of likes for one particular recipe yeah. and then not for another. And we thought it'd be really interesting to look at how and why that happens and to see whether there is a formula that makes it work. And then we have got a viral recipe in the issue, something that did capture the surprise of... of people um when we did it as a web exclusive recipe a little while ago and so i'll leave that as a surprise to discover what it is but also we talked to some of the people um internationally who have had surprise uh, successes somebody called alison roman who works for bon appetit who had she all her stuff is popular but there was a particular chickpea curry that just took Hashtag the stew. Yes, it just took the it took Instagram by yeah. storm, and I think it surprised her. But we we've realised that there are certain elements that unite these recipes, and usually it's ease, uh, an interesting combination of 
something like a mashup between two ideas mm. and uh, certainly something that's accessible and that you everyone feels they could make at home mm. as well as looking good yes all those things together but in a way that chickpea recipe is an unexpected one because yeah. there are so many quick and easy curries on on the internet who knows why that one took off it's a mystery so happened that I was recording a how to cook like Alison Roman later that day. So while she flash fried my steak, I asked her to share her secret of that viral recipe. If I knew how to do it, I would do it every time because I truly never know what is going to catch um, and what is going to be the next thing or successful. Um, I'm wrong all the time. And I think as soon as I start assuming what's going to be great, I, that's when it, the magic kind of goes away. And I don't even decide. The, the people decide. It's extremely democratic. Well, exactly. So the coconut and chickpea stew that became hashtag the stew, it went viral. It did, yeah. That kind of came out of nowhere. And the interesting thing about that is that it wasn't an iconic or known dish. Um, there was no spin or twist on something. It was not gimmicky. It was just a pot of chickpeas, really. It was a, it was a brown bowl of food. It was not especially... Uh, new and uh, but people loved it and it was really interesting in the way that it caught on and I think that social media had a huge role in that because you'd think that people would catch the picture first and then read about it but you're right that wouldn't have looked pretty, particularly pretty uh, I mean I think it was beautiful I try to only make food that's beautiful but I didn't think it was especially beautiful or more beautiful than any of the other food that I was making mm-hmm. I think part of it was that it was a vegetarian meal it was made of pantry staples um, it was something that people could easily recreate no matter where you lived or what ingredients you were using and chances are you had most of them on hand anyway so it was very accessible and I think people saw it and said oh I could make that tonight if I just go pick up a bunch of kale or a can of coconut milk and You know, it's really interesting because the viral recipe to me used to mean something that was gimmicky or had a or had a hook or seemed outlandish in some way. But now it's kind of translated to people are actually cooking it and it can't go viral unless you make it. And there's no way to fake it. You know, you can't talk about making it. You got to post a picture. You got to say that I made the stew. Did you make the stew? I brought it for leftovers to work. And it's a really interactive way to get people back into the kitchen and cooking. It's very exciting. Now, is there life after professional rugby? It's not something that former Saracens captain Alistair Hargreaves and his fellow South African pro Chris Wiles have thought about as they grew up on the rugby field. But a sporting career is not for life. And for Alistair and Chris, a chat over a pint led to a new career in craft beer. I met Alistair at their Wolfpack bar in London's Queen's Park and asked him if they knew anything about brewing when they started. No, we had no idea. Um, myself and Chris were looking at each other saying, you know, we need to find what this next thing is. And uh, we had a new stadium in Allianz Park and we thought, what do rugby fans need? Well, they need beer and the beer wasn't great. So this is about six or seven years ago. So we started thinking about how could we could bring a, a craft beer offering to our rugby stadium and had to figure out first of all how to brew it where to brew it what to do who to speak to so that was a huge learning curve and uh, and yeah four, four and a half five years later um, we're doing well we're selling in about 300 bars um, so it's been uh, it's been really really fun challenging but so far so good a lot of craft beer is super pretentious and it's very supposed to be very individual and sophisticated and we're going no no, no this is we want this to be accessible and we want people to come and enjoy the experience with our brand and our beer yeah 
And I love the idea that you have this deal with the pizza guy down the road. You have a deal with all these local restaurants. People can ring up and bring the food in and eat in your bar. Yeah, exactly. Well, we wanted to focus on what we are good at, and that's making beer. Um, we are restaurateurs, so we thought, well, why not just allow people to bring their own food or to order from other local um, shops and restaurants and takeaways and eat at our bar. So we focus on what we're good at, and that's making great beer and, I suppose, delivering good experiences and, um, and let the guys who kind of run the kitchens do their job properly as well. So it's open to everyone. We just want people to have a good time, really. And it's really important that you pass that message on. Tell me about how you're kind of spreading that message to young people. Uh, well, we work closely with, with Saracens and their personal development program uh, to encourage young players to, you know, to think about life after rugby. And we work with the RPA as well, which is the Rugby Players Association, just to tell our story and how much that benefited us, not, not only personally, but also in our careers. I think professional sports are a privilege. And, um, and and often it can be all-consuming once once you're in the career, when you're in the career. Um, but there has to be an acknowledgement of the fact that it's a short-lived career and there will be life after it as well. For us, we set up Wolfpack as a, as a kind of an exercise to have something to look forward to after our careers as professional sportsmen kind of came to an end. And we still try to pour the, the passion and energy that we had you know, for our rugby team into our business. And a lot of what we loved about sport was just being part of something bigger than ourselves and, and the camaraderie that surrounded it. We, we always felt that having something else to lean on and to focus on during a rugby career was actually really refreshing. It was a kind of a nice little mental holiday during a week to be able to divert the attention away from the intensity of rugby and to have something else to focus on. That, that ultimately gives you peace of mind because you know that after your career, there's always, there's always something there. So we try to tell a story and encourage people to get off the couch, uh, you know, to get off the PlayStation, to get out into the world and to invest their time wisely and to have an eye on the future. Someone who's a bit more long in the tooth in the drinks industry is James Milton, who first bottled his now legendary biodynamic Milton wine back in 1984. He became the first biodynamic winemaker in New Zealand and one of the pioneers across the world. But I found him surprisingly humble. I'm a country boy and I live in a little town so I don't get up much and I don't know what else other people are doing. But, you know, but we've been doing it for a while. You've been doing it for 35 years, yeah? yeah. I mean, I think we were the first people to bring... Um, certified organic produce into the UK from New Zealand and you can imagine that the understanding of the UK market was far greater than what we had at home so there was more acceptance here for it in the UK and then of course we had Chernobyl and mad cow disease and these other disasters that have happened and back in the 80s and the 90s the demand for this type of wine was increasing more and exponentially every year and you know what in the last two years I've seen the same thing happening with the British consumer is that they are now really, I mean the stuff you have available here to consume is incredible, yeah. all, pro, all probiotic stuff. Exactly so we're very into gut health, we're really yes. into saving the planet, we're really into wilding, rewilding letting nature actually do what nature is for Yes, I you... went for a walk down the, down the Regent Canal this morning after a meeting and this was the most beautiful spring day and as I was walking along there and, and uh, boats were going past and the birds were singing and so on, and I looked around at all these flowers and the trees and stuff like that, because at home it's autumn and we have no leaves on the, on the trees. And I looked around, you know what? All the herbs that we use in our biodynamic practice were all growing there, naturally, normally, just in the wild. Yeah. And when you're saying, the, you know, the wildingness of the set-aside areas that you have in England, this is where you guys are so... Onto it. Tell me what was the response from your New Zealand community when you said that you were going to make wines by the light of the moon? I, like I was young then, and I now see young people doing radical things 
in food and wine these days and either they're extremely clever or else they're crazy and I think many people thought of us when we were doing it in those times as being totally crazy because why would you want to do something so difficult? You were a young man, okay, you were obviously you know, a bit of a rebel and it must have been really fun but actually very difficult to bring new wines into an old market. Yes, let's be really clear, that is not difficult. Why should someone, why should you wake up in the morning and someone say you'll be disappointed today as opposed to saying what a beautiful day. And biodynamics is about life energy, and to have life energy, you have to be positive and look for the bright things. And so when it comes to being disappointed, disillusioned, disenfranchised, diseased, and that's the primary one, we're not. We do things the easy way. It's the most easiest thing you could ever do, because it's like dancing in a space with freedom of movement and understanding the rhythm. You live and grow your wines in a very Maori part of New Zealand. What's the influence of that on your wines? Um, 45% of our people were Maori in this region, so it brings about the culture and the respect and the nature. interesting thing about where I come from is that it's in 1200, that's where the first Maori landed in our little bay, and in 1769, in fact through 250 years ago to this year, that's where the first white man landed, Captain Cook, coming from England, New Zealand and in this instance when you said that uh, we've been doing things biodynamically since pioneering times as well then we come from the same bay as well and the little joke that I say about that is did we uh, get here because of Google Maps do you reckon the Maori had Google or Captain Cook had Google? No, no we looked at the stars and so the interesting thing is that with the Maori people they have got a lot of respect for the night sky and for the mother earth and father sky and the harmony that goes on between them. So, in actual fact, in our area, having a large, that's called tangata whenua, the people of the land, a lot of tangata whenua there, it brings out the warmth in your spirit and your physical being. It's fantastic. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, it's 35 years since Raymond Blanc first put the key in the door to open the Elizabethan manor house that became Belmont the Manoir au Katzeson. 
Aaron Barnes joined him just before his 70th birthday to ask him about the moment he fell in love with the place. I was a, a very young chef. Uh, we just won a two-star Michelin, a cat saison, a tiny little humble little place in Oxford. And I was a young chef. I mean, I had one day off. I was working 16 or 17 hours a day. And then I was leafing a magazine and I saw this extraordinary manor house, you know, when I had no money, of course. <laughs> but it just caught my imagination. And when I arrived to see his doors, to his beautiful gates, I just completely fell in love mm. with it. So when you, when you fall in love, forget about it, okay? <laughs> forget about uh, uh, the fact you don't have a penny in your pocket. Forget, you know, but you have a dream, okay? When I saw this place, I completely fell in love with his gardens, the different levels, the beautiful stones, the, the lovely yellow, yellow Oxford stone, the Elizabethan chimneys, the little, the beautiful 13th century Roman church mm. just beside Le Manoir. I fell in love with it all. Do you, 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 the, the way you talk about it, it is almost like falling in love with a, a partner for life. Is, yeah. that, is that how it felt for you? It, exactly. Through so the laws, the high and the lows, it, it is for life. It is for life. Uh, it's so much part of, what you, of your values, your, your aesthetic. L- luxury is not about the place. It's, it's a gift that everyone everyone in the team gives to each of our guests. That's when luxury, these beautiful, luxurious building gardens come alive through people. But it's not just the house and the stunning gardens which Raymond and his head gardener, Anne-Marie Owens, have developed over the last 35 years. He told Karen about the vineyard and the bee village that reflect his commitment to biodiversity and why an orchard is an essential part of the mix. We, did, uh, we just finished... Uh, an orchard which has two and a half thousand trees. And that orchard tells you a great and sad British story of uh, all the orchards that we have lost in Great Britain. So those very orchards which used to colour all the countryside from south to north, those orchards have disappeared, or most of them have. If we start to embrace local values, reinvent local values, those orchards can blossom again and colour all those villages and communities okay, from south to north. And where do the bees come into that? Are well, they in the, the orchard? Uh, the whole idea of this orchard and beyond, because we are also preparing now a vineyard, okay, uh, with Mr. Xavier Guillaume, a Frenchman who lives just 15 miles away from me at, in Besançon. He is planting a, a vineyard for you That's right, and yes. the and orchard. We're preparing the ground yeah. as we speak. Okay. We are preparing the ground and that project will take two years. So it's creating a, a totally integrated environment, okay, about respecting, honouring biodiversity. And then from that on, we're creating a fruit edge. Okay, which will feed the wildlife and so on, so on. will be nesting birds as well, which also will be a windbreak for the, for the orchard and for the vineyard. Wonderful. Okay? So and we will encourage the bees exactly. and the pollination. That's right. And the bee village is going to be magnificent. It's a childlike, uh, always I wanted to do it, it's a childlike dream. We're going to make little houses all different from each other, so pretty childlike, you know, with lots of colours, and the bees will be entering through here, you know, and, uh, and of course the, the, bee, the queen will be on a, in a castle with very tall dungeons and so on. <laughs> So lovely, and we create a past, a meandering, okay, to the bee village is going to be so, so beautiful. Now, the Manchester International Festival, the city's biennial celebration of arts and culture, runs from July the 4th to July the 21st. 
I met Managing Director of MIF, Christine Court, at the refuge on Oxford Street to find out where she eats and why food is such an essential part of the MIF experience. Well, I think particularly now, if you don't get your food and drink side of things sorted, you've sort of failed, almost irrespective of how wonderful the art is. Festival Square has maybe 150,000 people come through during the 18 days. It's vital that they go away having a brilliant impression of Manchester. For all our artists and our guests, we produce a comprehensive guide to our favourite picks across the city in which to eat. So I want them to be on Festival Square, but I also want them to experience unique Manchesterness. You know, we're pretty good at that in this city, so it's really important we give people a good time. You know, having spent 20 years in London, eating out when I worked a time out in the best restaurants had a charmed existence across the world, actually. I think what Manchester does really well is punches right from its soul. And there's some really brilliant food heroes here, like Adam at the Midland, like the, the People's Lunch here. I mean, what blooming good value. £7.50. I had Seabass uh, a couple of weeks ago. I bought a big New York producer. He was staying here and we had like half an hour. He's like, this is amazing. And then we've got wonderful areas in the northern quarter, you know, Teacup and Cottonopolis and Evelyn's Independence that really care about the chefs they employ, where they get their food from. We've been doing that for a long while. And you can hear Christine and Manchester's food experts discuss the city's food scene by clicking on this very podcast episode at deliciousmagazine.co.uk slash stories slash podcasts. Ben Tish, culinary director of the Stafford in London St James's, is obsessed with the influence of the Moors on food across the Mediterranean. His cookbook, the excellently named Moorish, explains why. And I asked him which recipe from the book sums up for him this hugely important legacy. Um, okay, that recipe I would have to say is Pinchos Marunos. Um, the for me that typifies um, cooking in uh, Moorish Andalusia and the whole concept of Moorish influenced cuisine on Spain and Italy, simply because um, it's clearly been introduced by uh, the Moors, North Africans, and um, and then it's been made into its own thing through years and years of um, the, the Spanish influence. Yeah, now you've always been interested in Spanish and Italian yeah, food, yeah. but why Moors? Um, well, I've yes, always been interested in Spanish Italian food, that's been my life for the past, I don't know, 15 or 16 years, and I think the more time I spent in Spain and Italy and Sicily... Um, Southern Southern Spain. Um, I was kind of more exposed to the to, to the Moorish influence, not just in the food, but in the in the kind of the culture and the architecture, food particularly. I I just was fascinated by how these Moors spent just a few hundred years, not long at all, um, occupying these parts of of the world, and the massive footprint they left um, on the food culture there. Not just in terms of you know the Pinchos Marinos we talked about, which is clearly typifies that you know it's essentially a kebab yeah. um but now but made with iberico pork is which is a spanish touch of it and using you know, smoked paprika and cumin for me that really typifies the whole moorish influence but it's also about the cooking techniques and lots of other things left there deep frying cooking over open fire okay they didn't invent cooking over open fire but they they they, they certainly introduced a, a controlled way of using cooking over open fire i.e grilling and and, and so on Distillation of alcohol was created by the Moors when they were in uh, when they were in Andalusia. It's just it's 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 significant, and I don't think it's I don't think it's been explored enough. And so that's what 
tried to do this book. Yeah, and, and very well. And there are things like, I mean, you know, the thing about food and identity is very often people will bring their food from home to their new place, so from the old country to the new country, mm. you know, from Italy to Australia, yeah. for example. And that tends to be peasant food. But this the story of the the, the pioneers mm. and, and the warriors is quite a different story, isn't it? There's an invasion mm. of flavour and technique. Yeah, when the Moors invaded southern Italy and Spain, well, southern Italy and Sicily, they planted um, orange and lemon trees as they invaded marched into those countries one because they wanted them there because that was their thing they loved it but also the country smelt so much that they wanted to kind of make it fresher for these you know these kind of invaders to come in and and you know make it their own and the rose waters and things like that to uh, to, to, to kind of make the place smell like home exactly that yeah. one of those flavors and one of your favorite flavors yeah. is cumin yes. now there wasn't cumin in some of these places before the moors came in no no they introduced it and i'm just thinking the impact of this one little spice mm. across the whole of the world yes absolutely yeah 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 i mean cumin for me is um i guess typifies not just moorish cuisine but the exoticness of, of spices from that part of the world you know it's kind of earthy but aromatic and mysterious and you just kind of know that there's a touch of the exotic about it but yeah i mean i mean certainly not just in spain you know with the pinchos marinos we talked about you know cumin is a big part of that but also i think in like sicilian cooking and um certainly on the west coast of sicily you know cumin is used um a lot in in dishes with kind of things like aubergines and um and a lot of their braises you know whole cumin seeds are put into put into their braises for that background aroma and kind of almost almost a warmth it's not a heat it's a warmth that uh, that cumin it introduces is, and, and very versatile because you mentioned the pinchos there that yeah. that's a open fire well exactly that i mean you know ground cumin is probably you know for better use for open fire because the, the seeds don't 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 burn but it's a spice that can be slow cooked into things in terms of the seeds background warmth or more of an instant hit in terms of powder on on charcoal things grilled over charcoal um it works it works perfectly Finally, Livy from the Delicious Food Team reminds us that this month in Delicious Land, it's all about skills and shares her best tip. Well, one of my favourite tasks in the kitchen is lining shortcrust pastry tart tins. It's a bit of an odd one, but I absolutely love it and get so much satisfaction. Um, and this month we've got our Always a Winner, which is shortcrust pastry tarts. So I thought it was a good opportunity to talk about my top tips. Share your skill. First of all, you need a high fat content and low water content in your pastry for a short result so that it's not tough and so we often use a ratio of 250 flour 140 butter two egg yolks and three tablespoons of water Mm -hmm. Um, so if you want you need to handle the pastry as little as possible and we often do this by using a magic mix because it means that you don't have warm hands on the pastry you need cold butter cold eggs just cold everything so yeah chill 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 exactly Um, and then when you're once you've made the pastry chill it then and then when you roll it and use it to line the tart tin, chill it again then. And a top tip I find when lining the tart tin is to tear off a piece of the pastry and use it to push the edges in so you get a really neat result. That means that your fingers aren't touching the pastry, it's not warming up, it's not stretching or anything like that. So once you've got a nice neat tin, use a rolling pin to roll off the edges for a really good result. A lot of people tend to bake the pastry cases first and then trim them, but I find if you chill the pastry well enough, there's no shrinkage and you don't need to do that. And this gives a much neater result. So once you've done that, chill the pastry again 
and then when you bake it, line with um, some kitchen foil. We think that's better than baking paper because it just looks a bit neater, mm-hmm. but either, either one will be fine. Um, ceramic baking beans are really, really good for conducting heat. And then when you want to blind bake the pastry, you do it for about 15 to 20 minutes and then take your baking beans out and cook it for another 5 to 10 minutes. The pastry should be sandy to the touch, golden, no grey areas that are undercooked, no soggy bits. And once you've done that, your pastry case is ready to fill. Fantastic. And tell us about the gluten. The point of chilling is something to do with the gluten relaxing. Exactly. So when you chill the pastry, the gluten relaxes. And that means that when you then bake it, it doesn't go all tense and shrink. And that's when you get that's when you get tart cases that shrink. So chilling it relaxes the gluten completely. And the longer you can chill it for, the better. At least an hour between making it and then baking it eventually is the best result. And if you're in a rush... Don't reduce the amount of time, just pop it in the freezer and that means it's quicker. And that's it for the monthly magazine style podcasts. Next week I'll be back with A Taste Like Home with Nadia Hussein. We'll be talking about her new book, Time to Eat, The Great British Bake Off of course, and the influence of her father on the way she cooks. I'll see you then. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manis and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code presson25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Presson Falsies. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.